Hi everybody, JP here. Want to take a moment to tell you about St. John Associates. They're a great recruiting firm that was recommended to us by one of our listeners. They've been around for over 30 years and they match thousands of physicians with practices and healthcare systems across the country. They have an experienced team that works in all specialties, including neurosurgery and orthopedic spine surgery, and they have close connections with employers across the country. They will look at your CV, They'll match you with practices based on your preferences for geography and lifestyle. And all of this comes at no cost to the physician job applicant. So just visit them at stjohnjobs.com slash nspod to get started with your job search today if you're in the market. Again, that's stjohnjobs dot com slash nspod. Following that link will let them know that you found them through us. This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. I am super delighted today to be joined by two fellows here at University of Miami, um, Matt Sun and Eva Wu. Now, here in Miami, we have a very busy uh, spine practice, but we also have an incredibly busy complex cranial practice. So uh, Dr. Jacques Morcos runs a fellowship that's, I, get, I think it's skull base and vascular, right? And um, these are his two fellows for 2022 to 2023. Do you guys want to introduce yourselves briefly? Sure. My name is Matt Sun. I am a graduate of the UCLA residency program and here this year with Dr. Jacques Morcos to do the combined cerebrovascular and skull base surgery fellowship after my residency. I'm Eva Wu. I'm uh, one of the PGY4s at Miami, and so I'm doing Dr. Morcos' infolded um, cerebrovascular skull-based fellowship. Great. And can you guys just tell me briefly, like, what are your plans, like, uh, you know, especially for you, Eva, but Matt, what are you doing next year? Are you going off to be an attending? You're doing another fellowship? What are you going to do? I don't know yet. That's the short answer. And um, I'll tell you briefly what my plans are. Not going to be another fellowship. Uh, but going to be an attending, and I am looking for an academic position for um, neurosurgical oncology with a focus in skull-based pathologies. Also hoping to run a lab to do research. My research interest is in meningioma, particularly developing novel immunotherapies for meningiomas. Oh, that's very cool. Now, you're PGY8 now, right? Correct. Okay, great. And how about you, Eva? What are your plans? Uh, I mean, my plans now, I, I mean, I'm still you know, open and looking for, you know, fellowships. And so I think that, you know, I'm in a different situation as Matt, like Matt's a PGY-8, I'm a PGY-4. So I think that, you know, right now, I think there's a lot more that I, you know, I feel like I need to learn. And so, you know, I'm hoping to do, you know, another fellowship, hopefully, down the line. As a PGY-8? Yeah, probably. Okay, so two full years of skull-based fellowship, so to speak? Yeah. Well, I mean, just because I feel like now, you know, as a PGY-4, I feel like there's stuff that I don't know that I'm not comfortable with. But I'm sure, I don't know if, like, you know, three years down the line, if I'll feel the same way. And are you one of the six plus one residents? Yes. Or, okay. So you also have an internal fellowship in the seventh year mm-hmm. open, and what are you thinking about doing for that? Uh, I'm still looking around and trying to figure it out. So you could potentially graduate with three years out of eight doing skull-based, so yeah. to speak. Wow. Okay. So I wanted to delve into this because residency programs are changing. Of course, when I was in training, most programs were six or seven years. People went through and the idea was that everybody was trained the same in the sense that uh, all neurosurgeons can do everything, right? 
And then if you want to do a fellowship, you could do that extra. But obviously we see here in Miami and other places are talking about doing the six plus one, six years plus final either transition to practice year or internal fellowship or external fellowship and other models. And so we see a lot of folks starting to do more and more of these sort of internal concentrated years. And I wanted to dip a little deeper into what that really means. Like, for example, in our Spine Fellowship, we have many fellows, maybe about a third of them in our program, are PGY fours or fives that are doing a year of spine or two years of spine. So maybe, maybe we can start with Eva and say, Eva, like, how do you see your role as a fellow maybe different than Matt? Obviously, you're four, he's an eight, but you're both called fellows, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think that my role, I mean, in the OR, I mean, I'm helping Matt out. I mean, I, you know, he lets me do a lot. And so, you know, you know, but he's like the main lead. And so I think that's the advantage of being like the PGY-8 fellow is like they're the main like, you know, person, like leader of the surgery. But you prefer there to be two rooms going, right? Yeah, I do. <laughs> okay. And um, if there's a chief resident too, do they tend to scrub on your side or his side or if there are two rooms? So usually they put like the chief with the PGY-6 and then they put me with Matt. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you're together and the two residents yeah, are together. usually, typically, yeah. Or unless, you know, some, sometimes it's a little mixed up. Yeah, and in particular, not all chiefs are perhaps interested in some of the specialized vascular cases, for example, unless they're going to go into vascular and so cases that are complex, complex EVMs, bypasses, those really would just be done by me and Eva, assisting Dr. Morcos. Right, right. And it's interesting to me because if you look at this rubric, and we see it in spine too, it's like, are you like skull-based vascular or skull-based gamma knife? Or are you like vascular endovascular? Or, you know, you know what I mean? Right. Is pituitary tumor, is that tumor or skull-based? Yeah, totally. And we see this kind of dichotomy. So, so... Obviously, you're getting vascular and skull-based, Matt, but Eva, are you thinking about doing a, mil- a different kind of fellowship that's maybe a little bit sidebarred? Um, I feel like it's kind of early for me to tell now. I'm still kind of just figuring it out and figuring, you know, what exactly I want to do for, like, the PGY-7 or 8 fellowship. Yeah. Yeah, to me, it's, I mean, obviously, skull-based vasculars is probably the number one reason why people can go into neurosurgery as a medical mm-hmm. student, right? The fascination with that idea of the very complex microsurgery, essentially, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's so much there. There's a lot of richness. I think people have a lot of interest in this topic. The The issue of having to do multiple, multiple fellowships, like Stephanie Chen, who finished last year, right? She's doing a fellowship now in um, Seattle. She did infolded fellowships, and she's talking about a ninth year. Wow. And I don't know if she's going to do it or not, But and, and I, Stephanie may be listening or maybe not, but I mean, how many years does a person need? And what years do those years need to be? What do you, what do you think, Matt? I think it depends on your ultimate career goals is that if you have a particular practice in mind and you definitely want to be as prepared as possible to have that kind of career, uh, then you do as many years as you need. For me personally, I have a research interest in brain tumors, particularly skull-based tumors, and I'm not looking necessarily to treat aneurysms uh, endovascularly myself. And so I was looking for a uh, skull base plus something that would give me the additional competitive edge, in this case, the open cerebrovascular training, which, as Dr. Morcos has mentioned before, uh, synergizes with the skull base training, allows you to be just overall a better open surgeon in general. So I think that it really, again, would depend on each person's career goals. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
And Eva, what do you think? I mean, do you think that by having these years, the four and the seven year, that by the time you apply for your eighth year, you'll be like way better prepared, that you're going to be like some sort of super fellow? Like, what is your thinking about all this? Yeah, no, I mean, I think I definitely think having the fourth year as an infolded and the seventh year, it'll be, you know, it's um, very beneficial. I mean, I've done, you know, a bunch of cases with Dr. Morcos that, you know, when I talk to other residents at other programs, they say they've never seen before, they've never done before. And so I think I definitely, you know, this has been an amazing year and I, you know, would do this year again if I, if I could, but it's been, uh, you know, I think it's a great opportunity for, you know, anyone if they have the opportunity to do an infolded uh, school-based fellowship definitely gives you like an edge and you know you you know you get early exposure to all this stuff that you know other people haven't seen before well so speak to the opposite argument right because we also have residents here like because there's two infolded yeah. years i'm just going to name them because cat berry's been on the program before but like cat berry is doing one year of tumor infolded fellowship and one year of spine Right. And so those folks might say to you, well, listen, I, I've gotten training in all these different areas where you guys right. have been so narrow. Right? right. Speak to that. Like, what do you think? How does that differ from your game plan? Well, I think uh, I sort of worked in my case, worked my way backwards. I have always been interested in neurosurgical oncology and academic neurosurgical oncologists or brain tumor surgeons. Um, the job market is competitive, particularly on the research front, particularly if you have basic translational research or if you run a lab. You know, we have examples here at UM, there are surgeons that do that. And so for me, what I needed to do during residency really involved not only trying to become the best possible you know, brain tumor surgeon, but also to have the research needed to be able to run a lab, which is what I wanted to do. And so instead of doing infolded, clinically focused uh, fellowship years during residency, I actually spent uh, pretty much two full years in the lab to do the research I need to do so that when I apply for a job for a surgeon scientist position, I will be qualified and I'll be competitive. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I... You know, You're like hyper targeted. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, even down to like what your research interest is. Correct. And yeah. I have research interest picked out from an NGOMAS, which, as you know, some of them are in the skull base. And so that's how I also plan my clinical fellowship training so that it completely synergizes with my research interest. How about spinal meningiomas? Are you going to be doing those? Oh, I love those, but I just need <laughs> someone to let me to do those. But I, would, I love We'll take those. the laminate off for you. Exactly. <laughs> how about you, Eva? So, so speak to the. General specialist paradigm, right? Yeah, no, I mean, I think it goes back to what Matt was saying based on, you know, how you envision your future career to be, you know, so, you know, other residents who they feel like they might want like a more private practice job that does, you know, spine and cranial and everything. I mean, I think that, you know, doing what Kat did is good, you know, because you get exposure to everything, but other people who, you know, just want to specialize in like cerebrovascular and skull base, like, you know, they might just want to, you know, just do hyper-specialize and just do, you know, those enfolded fellowship years. And and if I may just kind of add on to my comment before, I, I think that during residency, uh, all residents should, you know, try as much as possible, learn every facet of neurosurgery. When I was a chief, um, which was PGY six year at UCLA, I got to choose, as most chiefs do, whatever cases I wanted to do. And I personally picked as many spine cases, as cranial cases, as a chief. 
and I personally enjoy doing the T10 to pelvis as much as doing a skull-based tumor. Um, and I'm sad to say I probably would miss doing those, but you know that's what it takes to be in academia later on as a faculty. So you have to focus to be the best you can. Well, I certainly uh, take your side if, if I could go that far, and I'm biased towards the specialist model because I think the whole history of humanity and civilization, I should say, right. is about specialization. Like, I don't know how to grow food, and I shouldn't have to, but nobody else can do what I do in certain areas of spine, let's say. Yeah. Or very few people can, I should say. That's, that's an overreach. But, you know, the rarefication of your skill set is what makes an economy efficient and creates the advancement in, uh, of the field, which pushes the envelope. So, you know, skull base and vascular being what it is, which is extremely complicated, um, high-stakes surgery, um, decision-making, interpretation of, of imaging is very complicated, obviously. I, I can't tell you what kind of sphenoid wing meningiomas are dangerous and which ones aren't anymore. It's just beyond me now. Eva, as a four, do you, and I'm going to challenge you on this, do you feel like you're even ready to do a fellowship? And I know you're exceptional. I know that, look, your surgical skills are way beyond fourth year, but I'm just saying for the fourth year in general, is it beyond their reach? Um, I, I don't think so. I mean, I think that, you know, in the OR, there's always like graduated, you know, learning. And so, you know, I think that, you know, as you, you know, do cases, you start knowing more and more. And then as a result, you know, people who are in the OR with you, they let you do more and more. And so it's not just, you know, you jump in and you start doing all this, you know, stuff that you've never done before. I think it's a graduated learning. And so I don't, I don't think that, you know, in the beginning, I thought that maybe, you know, doing the school based fellowship as a PGY4 maybe, um, you know, I guess uh, you could call it ambitious, but I think that, you know, now, you know, six months in, I think that it's actually, I don't think that it's like, you know, I think it would be a good idea for any four that would want to do it. Um, well, that's, that's an important point. I mean, you are very special in this regard. And um, can I ask you about the non-operative lab experience? So like you spend a lot of time in the lab, like I, I imagine that's something you could do, right? Yeah, so I think that, uh, you know, me and uh, Matt and I have gone to the lab like a few times, maybe like four times, you know, this, you know, this year. And so, you know, I think that, you know, Dr. Morcos is so busy that, you know, a lot of the times we don't have that much time to go to the lab. But of course, you know, if you have time, the, do going to the lab is actually, you know, it's very helpful. You know, you can drill out whatever you want, temporal bone anatomy, anything. And, you know, I think that actually helps with uh, operative anatomy, you know, knowing the operative anatomy. And I know that Matt, uh, he can speak to it, too. But when you were at UCLA, you also went to the cadaver lab as well. Yeah, right? cadaver lab is extremely helpful for surgeons in general, but in particular, skull-based surgeon. And uh, I think uh, I was probably one of the residents that went to the lab the most uh, in residency, particularly um, during my research years. I, I went, you know, once a week. Yeah, I like that the two of you have brought that back. It's not a knock on this program at all, but I think that, you know, Miami being what it is, I think a lot of folks have not paid the dues. I don't want to name names, but I always tell I always thought that, you know, shout out to John Diaz Day who was who who coined my nicknames at, at USC and taught me a lot and wrote the first skull base atlas in the world that, you know, you should be every Saturday, Sunday, as he and Mike Levy were drilling on heads all all weekend. And um, that's one thing I think that in Miami that we could probably do a better job of, and, and I'm very appreciative that you two have brought that discipline 
back to this environment, at least temporarily. Totally. And uh, honestly, Dr. Wayne, just to let you know, I did my first VCR on a cadaver before I did it on a human. (laughs) (laughs) You're probably one of the few. (laughs) So let let me go back to you, Matt, and and talk about something that is important. And and again, our listeners are all interested in neurosurgery. Some are students, some are residents, some are uh, fellows, some are attendings, people in industry. So now you're in this job hunt and, and you go through residency seven years basically in this vacuum just doing what you're told and most people are not really thinking about like in a concerted way what they're going to do when they finish i know they talk about it like oh i'm going to have a lot of amazing cars and i'm going to make right. a lot of money and live in a great city but they're not thinking about it concertedly the way you're thinking about it which is how do i go to get extramurally funded research and the clinic patients i need and or cases i need to be successful right mm-hmm. Tell me how fellowship training plays into that process, plays into all that. I I think, uh, one, skill set, it helps you to build that. Two, definitely a level of confidence that um, you probably wouldn't otherwise have if you didn't do the extra uh, post-residency fellowship there. And I would say one key element in trying to figure out what one would like is, is... is what is the day-to-day like for a potential role model that you have? You know, if you want to be a brain tumor surgeon scientist, really talk to that person and figure out what, what is their actual day-to-day like? Is this the lifestyle you want to live? And for me, what I realized was that I enjoyed both clinical neurosurgery and being in the lab doing research, writing grants, writing papers equally. And I actually needed both to be happy. And so I found that it was necessary to do, do both well. And that's how I strategized. Yeah, so you're yeah. saying, if I can paraphrase, you're saying that it helped, the experience helped to crystallize in your mind that this seems to be the right choice for you. Yeah. But my question was a little, and that's a great answer to a very important other question, but the question I was asking was more like, you're, you're on the job hunt. Yeah. You're trying to make yourself as marketable as possible Correct. to get the best possible position, which may be competitive, right? How does the fellowship play into that? Is it is it the name of the person you trained with? Is it a number of cases you did? Is it, you know, what what are the pieces that really you you've, you're finding matter? Right? In this case, the name matters a lot for school based fellowships. Uh, the uh, actual cases that you do do matter. Uh, these have all been brought up during my interviews for jobs. So I, I think that what you mentioned. I totally agree with. Okay, so those two for sure. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so I think as people start looking for fellowships and training, you know, when you look for a residency program, very few people go, I'm going to go to residency, it's going to get me the best job, right? Right. They're not thinking about it that way, but they kind of should be. Exactly. Right? I, I can just add kind of one example, right? One place I interviewed at, and the senior skull base surgeon literally told me, you know, Matt, if you join us, I would love to also run cases by you, even for you being a junior faculty, just so you can tell me what would Dr. Morcos do for a case like that. Wow, that's, that's quite a statement. That's literally an example of how that works. Yeah, yeah, that's very, very interesting. All right, all right. Well, as we wrap this up, I just maybe want to grab from both of you, because you've been so generous with your time, some closing comments about what you think about. Uh, let, me, let me put it this way. Maybe how do you know that skull base or vascular is for you? Right. How do you know that, you know, you could be a PGY1 or you could be a fourth year medical student. You're like, I think I want to do this. And maybe you're going to save that individual a lot of grief. Mm-hmm. Or maybe you're going to inspire some people who are going to go, well, that's definitely 
my cup of tea, right? And I, I would do the same thing for spine, but this is your time. So let me start with Eva. What, what are the characteristics that you would tell younger people, maybe like an intern, like, yeah, yeah, this is the thing for you or this is not the thing for you? Mm. I think about it. Can we do okay, we, we can do math first, but I'll, I'll go spine. How about I do spine first and then I'll, I'll go from that, okay? So I would say that the features that would define a true spine surgeon in neurosurgery, not orthopedics, right, is that the spinal neurosurgeon gets selected out because of a couple features. One is they don't like to hurt people. They, they have an aversion, and I'm not saying the skull-based people like to hurt people. I'm saying they have a strong aversion to that element. Not that we don't hurt people, but the level of damage um, is less even if the litigation's higher. The, the reality of it is, is that someone who has a numb foot or a foot drop is not the same as someone who's blind, right? Let's just be perfectly honest about that. Even if you're more likely to be sued for a foot drop than blindness, th that's a different question, right? And I think this, this spine surgeon also has to have an incredible tolerance of living in a world that's full of vagueness about every feature, whether it's surgical selection, patient selection, procedure selection, what to say to people, the variability between the non-surgical to the surgical to the extreme to the MIS. Living in that gray zone 24-7 with every single human you encounter is the hallmark of a great spine surgeon and being comfortable with that. That plus not want to hurt people. I, if, if you ask me what would, how would I pick out the guys who should do spine or the gals that should do spine over endovascular, let's say, mm -hmm. right? Those would be my features. And I'm not going to go to the negatives like we don't have to be called up at night as much. Uh, we get more RVUs per case, all these things. We could get into that too, but this is not a spine discussion, right? So with that, Eva, do you now that you had a little time to think about, how would you talk to like a PGY1 or like a fourth year medical student about, you know, you're good or not good for this field? I mean, I think one of the main things would be, you know, you have to be okay with operating, you know, for a long, long period of time. You know, Morcos' cases, they always, you know, we typically get out at like 12 a.m., 2 a.m., you know, for example, you know, on his busy days. And so I think that's one of the main things. Um, you have to, you know, just love, you know, skull-based anatomy. And if you're not really interested in that kind of stuff, I feel like it's probably, you know, less, you know, up your alley. To, to me, it sounds like what you're saying is you have to be incredibly persistent mm -hmm. and detail-oriented. You can't be the guy who's like, ah, that's good enough. Like, we see a lot of people in residency who are like, they're kind of doing a shitty job of a case, and you're like, they're like, yeah, yeah, it's good enough for, for this case. Like, that's probably yeah. not a great trait for yeah. a skull base or vascular surgeon, right? Yeah. Not to mean that you're obsessive, mm -hmm. but that attention to detail yeah. and preparation. Okay, yeah, it's good. Matt? Well, I think um, it uh, actually begins with the clinic experience, a skull-based cerebrovascular clinic um, is incredibly uh, fulfilling and actually fun to be part of where you really are talking to patients. Let's just give an example, right? Skull-based meningioma. Um, the alternative to you doing your best and doing a gross oral resection without harming the patient is either radiation or a quote-unquote less skilled surgeon and so when you do a good job for a patient and their tumor is completely gone and it doesn't matter if you spend 12 hours working at it but they're so grateful so that's one thing i love is is the clinic experience secondarily just like what eva said in the or under the microscope um, one really can get into the flow state that you know i think dr morkos has talked about before that's that people know about and 
it's it's not even just for kind of the the enjoyment of the surgeon, but that you know that every move that you make can help the patient. I'm I'm sure it's the same for you know any other surgical subspe- subspecialty, but that being patient and just know that even if it's at midnight, you're still working at it, and 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 everything you're doing is helping the patient. So, I love that aspect of it. Um, Lastly, is really just knowing yourself in general. I think um, really knowing what is it that you like to do uh, late at night. Do you still enjoy operating past midnight? So that's one thing. Two is that um, you know, are you willing to uh, accept the risks for uh, a patient with potentially devastating outcome? Right, they're unable to swallow. Sometimes they have facial asymmetry. They can't speak from, you know, hoarseness. And, um, and how do you have those difficult conversations with a patient, both pre-op and post-op? And so accepting potential complications is another big factor that you mentioned, Dr. Rain. Yeah, excellent. And, and what, I'm, what I'm hearing from you, if I can distill it a bit more, is that you're seeing the actual translation of the sacrifice, if you will, that the surgeon's making being seen in the clinic because that extra effort, and it's not a small effort, mm-hmm. you, you see the patient may not even know the value, but right. you know the value because of what it took to take a right. tumor like that out, right? Exactly. Even if you go home late, you want to be able to go home and be able to sleep well because you know you tried your best every single day, every single minute. Yeah, excellent. Well, those are great thoughts. I really want to thank you guys for taking time out of the clinic. Sorry about some of the ambient noise. Uh, Eva Wu, uh, Matthew Sun, uh, congratulations on your amazing success so far. Look forward to seeing you guys again in the future, maybe back on the podcast. Thank you, Dr. Wang. Thanks. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.